You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Broverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is our original sponsor. They're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards. We've got Star Wars miniatures. They just have everything that you could possibly want. Plus, Leon, their owner, is an amazing dude. He uh, He's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need. And uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 Young Street. So you got to go down. You got to check out their merchandise. Sometimes they have weekly live role-playing games, some Magic the Gathering stuff. They're doing championships all the time. You've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to Toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 Young Street and tell them Aaron sent you Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people, welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Don't forget to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast needs met. If you review our show and uh, DM me on social media at SpeechBubblePod, I will send you a comic from my personal collection. So don't be afraid. Give us a review. It helps uh, people find us and get to know the podcast a little bit better. With me today, we have Richard Pace. He's a journeyman. He's been in comics forever, basically. He worked on The Doom That Came to Gotham. It's a Batman comic with Mike Mignola. Uh, You know him now as the cover artist for Imaginary Fiends. Uh, The trade paperback is probably out, so you can pick that one up. And his next book is The Second Coming, Second Coming from Ahoy Comics, but he's worked on a whole bunch of other stuff, Storytellers with Alan Moore, he wrote Pit Crew, he did Pit for a while, so he's been around. He's done you know, Marvel, DC, every major company. Welcome, Richard. Nice to, uh, nice to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's really cool to have you in. Um, I'm sure you have a lot of stories, and I can't wait to get into them. But before we get into uh, what you're currently doing, what was your early life like? How did you grow up? Um, vertically, mostly. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Okay. Um, 
I think I think the the most interesting thing about Winnipeg is the amount of people you run into who left Winnipeg. Uh, it's 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 a prairie town. It's it's got its charm, but it in terms of like networking for a career in the arts, it's it it just doesn't doesn't do it. My my dad actually is from the north end of Winnipeg. Well, there there you go. Yeah, and he and he <laughs> left Winnipeg in like the seventies. Yeah. So yeah, I, I left in the mid eighties. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So then, how did you get into comics? As a kid, were you were you into comics? Uh, I read comics when I was a little kid, especially on like road trips. Uh, my parents used to take drives from Winnipeg to Calgary and back every summer, and so they'd buy us a big, big poly bag of comics from Kmart. And so we get to reread those hundred page classics or giant size comics. So um, I loved comics there. I fell out of love of comics, um, but I never stopped drawing. And uh, shortly after I discovered Frank Frazetta, probably the grandfather of modern fantasy art. Yeah. Um, I was reading his biography and before he started doing all those amazing book covers, he mentioned he did comics. And I went, oh, well, there's the template. You got to do comics before you become... An amazing book cover artist. <laughs> and um, so I had friends who were really, really into comics. And they went, oh, you're interested? I went, yeah. So they bra- dragged me to my first direct market store, uh, Doug Sulupa's Comic World in Winnipeg, Manitoba. All right. Used to be ads. If you, if you collect any comics from like the 70s and early 80s, used to be ads, Doug Sulupa's Comic World. And you, if you're looking through back issues, you might see them. And um, it was dirty, filthy, comics piled everywhere, and I was in love immediately. And uh, so I started reading comics, um, found my favorite artists uh, through reprints of from that era in the 80s. Uh, I discovered like, you know, Bernie Wrightson's Swamp Thing, uh, all sorts of amazing artists that influenced me tremendously. And um, I was hooked. The, 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 the path was no longer to just try and, you know, use comics as a stepping stone to something else. The goal was comics, period. And in the 80s, it was like the big, like, black and white boom. So there was all these independent comics coming out, too. I, th- I think the biggest influence for me at the time was discovering, almost simultaneously, Bill Sienkiewicz's Moon Knight. Um, this is at the period where he was, like, inking himself and just going crazy visually. And almost immediately thereafter, his run on New Mutants. Yeah. And it was, it was, um, I, I was picking up uh, from the libraries whenever I could these illustrator annuals, these massive hardcover books showing like the best artwork from the year of, of illustration. They'd have like a gallery show and everything, but they put out these massive collection books. And I was, I was seeing illustrators like Bob Peak and Mark English and all these amazing guys who just, in, just impressed the hell out of me. And here was this guy in comic books who was, who was incorporating all these visual elements into comic books. I went, oh my gosh, you don't have to draw like John Byrne or Kurt Swan. As much as I love those guys, you don't have to draw like them to draw comics. Yeah. And um, again, I was already hooked and that just, you know, that hauled me into the boat that said comics on the side. That's amazing. So... How did you get into drawing? You said that even before comics, you were drawing. What led you to pick up a pencil and start drawing? Well, I, I think every kid starts off drawing, okay. boy, girl, whatever. And uh, in our culture, there's a certain amount of pressure to put that pencil down. Okay. Right. And some kids don't listen very well. And I've always been one of those kids that never listened very well. So it's like, I, I, uh, there was that, that wonderful, Ooh, I drew something well. I mean, you'd look at it now and you go, Oh my God, that's terrible childish drawing, but I liked what I did. And it had that feedback loop of like, where I drew something, 
I liked what I did. I draw something else. I, I realize it's a little bit better and I'd keep drawing. Yeah. And there's like a level of immediacy because you're producing a product that's like right in front of your face, right? Yeah. I, th I think it's actually easier in many ways for artists to decide they're going to be artists and for writers to decide they're going to be writers. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Um, so when you're collecting comics in the 80s and that sort of thing, you said off air before we started that you, you interned at Vortex. And, and they were big in like sort of the 80s, early 90s uh, as a Canadian publisher publishing Mr. X. And that was probably their most famous uh, book. So how did, you, how did you get involved with that? Uh, at that point, I was already in art school. I had uh, come to Ontario and I was studying at Sheridan Illustration. Sorry, Sheridan College studying illustration. Already having in mind that you're going to work in comics. Yeah, and, and every single teacher told me not to, and, uh, which was kind of funny. But uh, the internship came up, and I was majoring in book illustration my final year of college. And uh, my prof there wanted to put me in with one of the major uh, textbook publishers. And he says, it guarantees you a job. But I already found out that Vortex Comics had an office above the Silver Snail downtown Toronto. And I reached out to Bill Marks, and I said, hey, can I intern there for a month? And he was like, intern? Oh, work for free? Sure. And so I disappointed everyone again, and I interned at Vortex Comics. At the time, they were publishing, again, you know, um, Chester Brown's work. Made, um, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting him. It's, damn it. Um, he was amazing. He was a, he's an underground legend guy. He did, um, oh, this is terrible. Terrible. Just, just forgetting the name of, like, a, a classic. He did two comics from Vortex at the same time. Very underground, very pen and ink. Okay. Not not Seth. Um, Chester Brown. Not Chester Brown. Uh, you know what? I'm, okay. We're gonna have to do some sort of like amendment later. Okay. When for I remember sure. his name. Uh, but also at uh, right at that time, Vortex was publishing Howard Chaykin's Black Kiss, and uh, yeah. I, I, if 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 um, if Vortex is most famous for Mister X, they're probably most infamous for Black Kiss. Right. Because uh, it, it was sort of a porn comic, right? Well, uh, it, uh, the the origins of it were. Everyone was doing these very exploitative black and white comics, right? Right. They were like, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They were exploiting the idea of like the X Men as 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 a spinoff thing, right? And and Howard, being Howard, says none of these people know what exploitation is. So let me do an exploitation <laughs> comic, right? So it was violent, vulgar, uh, dealt with uh, sex, identity, and race in ways that every other comic was terrified of, right? Uh, to the point where they had to polybag it. Because it had explicit violence and sex throughout it, uh, drug use by primary characters in a completely laissez-faire manner. It's like let's go do some coke, yeah. um, and it was it was it was even edgier than anything Howard had done at that prior to that point, and that was also in terms of content transformative. It was it was bringing a lot of the the underground comics from the '60s and '70s or the head comics and saying, you know, we're, we can do essentially a mainstream crime story with it. Wow. Yeah. Although it was a horror story or anything else. And Bill Marks was kind of notorious too. Cause yeah. there was some stories. Like I remember talking about Vortex with Seth when I interviewed him and he talked about how like it was, it was a little dodgy to sort of work for Bill Marks. There was, everyone sort of had a Bill Marks story. Everyone did, did you has have, do you have a Bill Marks story? Uh, most of my, because uh, interestingly enough, I have, I have a history of um, everyone who has the worst possible stories with people. I generally get treated well by them. Okay. And maybe just because I'm usually bigger than all the people that, that screw over everyone else. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, Bill Marks 
He actually, after the end, at the end of my internship, he gave me a part-time job. Wow. Yeah. So was, I was actually fully paid by Bill for all the work I did at his, at his place there. Um, what were you doing? Uh, after my internship, there was things like getting posters ready to be signed. So I was pre-numbering all, the, all these Black Kiss posters and all that stuff that Howard would later come in and sign. Uh, organizing stuff to be shipped. Uh, it, was, it was literally the, the, the grunt work of running a small publisher. Um, and none, none of it was sexy. None of it was like particularly fun, but it's like every once in a while, you know, Chester Brown would come in or, um, Hochi Anderson would come in. Yeah. The Hernandez brothers somewhere. Uh, I don't, I, I think they were long gone long at gone. this point. Yeah. It's, they, they probably would have like, uh, done some violence to Bill. Yeah. And it was amazing. There's it's years later. I'd meet like people like Ty Templeton and tell me their Bill Mark stories. And it was like, yeah, he's terrible. Terrible. How'd he screw you? He didn't. Okay. Right. I mean, it was it was kind of fun. I mean, and years later, people would go, "Wow, you you worked with Liefeld. Did he ever pay you?" And yeah, he did. Right on time too. And wow. it's like he was very nice to me when we met in person. I mean, it's it's um, I, I I I guess I get a, a lucky charm somewhere. Yeah, lucky you for yeah, sure. Yeah. So then, after Vortex, where did you go next? Well, um, Vortex left Toronto around that point. So in terms of like industry connection moving forward, there was nothing there there. They went on to do uh, NASCAR comics, which was wildly successful for, I think, six months for them. Right. Um, but it was like, it was, it was literally a dead end. Yeah. Um, I did some indie work. Um, I think the first thing that came close to major work was working for David Campetti's Innovation Comics on the Vampire Lestat, which was, uh, you, you could learn how bad comics companies can operate by encountering some, some of the people at the, the lower end of what we can, uh, of what we could call like mid-tier publishing. Yeah. I mean, um, and you, in the nineties, it seemed like there was little tiny companies all, all the, all over the place. Right? Yeah. There were, there were like, it was weeds. the boom, right? Yeah. There were, there was, there was people after the black and white boom and collapse, which, which damaged a lot of comic shops. Uh, there was seemed to be like another resurgence right in right in the nineties, uh, of basically licensed comics. Dark horse was doing alien and, uh, Robocop and all these other comics that were just selling tons and innovation managed to license, uh, the vampire Lestat. Oh, sorry. No, they start. Yeah. The vampire Lestat. And it sold through multiple printings. They realized they had a gold mine. So they started licensing everything. They licensed the rest of the Anne Rice books uh, as, as, as many as they could get. They did Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm probably forgetting or confusing some of them. And so they saw that there was money to made, but they still did everything on the cheap. Wow. There's, there's a great story, and I'm, I'm going to tell this. It's not my story, but I'm going to tell this before I tell you the, the innovation story. Okay. Uh, there was an issue of because there was these beautifully fully painted comics coming out of Marvel's Epic Illustrated line in the uh, in the 80s. Right. And one of the illustrators um, painted on illustration board. And if you don't know what that is, that's it's, it's a very, very, very heavy uh, cardstock. Right. And traditionally what they would do is they would peel off the surface level of the illustration board so they could wrap it around a drum scanner. Mm-hmm. That, that was the early technology for scanning full color artwork. And you weren't supposed to do that. They were supposed to do a photographic method where they take a high-quality photograph, get a transparency, and, and reproduce from the, the high-quality transparency. But someone, some, some brilliant genius, peeled off this beautiful, full-painted piece of work, oh. and Marvel paid the artist a lot of money for the damaged artwork. Wow. Um, 
so I was, I, was, I was just going in assuming, oh, people treat artwork with respect. Mm. Innovation would find a double spread, a beautiful big double spread I painted over Derek Gross's uh, pencils. And they cut them in half. Oh, man. And so they could actually scan them in what we call imposition. So they could actually scan them so they could put them into, into the book without having to cut film. So somehow they saved 10 bucks yeah, doing that. This whole... But they, uh, I, would get, I would get the artwork back. <coughs> And they, they put they reassembled it with packing tape. Wow, that's crazy! Like <laughs> yeah, and you always hear those stories like Kirby pages just thrown in the trash yeah. and that sort of thing. You know, yeah. people like uh, Flo Steinberg having to like save them, yeah, and then selling them later for profit. Yeah, there's there's stories about people doing yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But this is actually after the point when people realize you're supposed to treat the artwork with a certain amount of respect. Right. So that's why I was I was compl- caught completely flat footed with that and. It, so I ran screaming from that company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't much longer until I, I got my first real work at Marvel on, on uh, a terribly forgettable book, only for my input. It was, it was better than me, called Terror Incorporated. And it was due for cancellation. So that's why I got my shot. No one else wanted to touch it. Yeah. So that was, that was a great learning experience. So when you're breaking into the industry, like in terms of the, your skill – you know, you went to school, you went to art school and that sort of thing. Did that help or was it just practicing and practicing and practicing and getting out there that got you these jobs? I, I would not give up on my art education. Okay. I learned so much about perspective and composition that a lot of artists just don't, they don't get. Uh, right. I have a foundation in life drawing um, because of my, my professors from Sheridan that a lot of other artists who just copy other artists never get. Right. Um, but I would have to say that most of the stuff I rely on on a day-to-day basis is stuff I've taught myself since. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that it, it's like art school gave me a, a head start on a lot of skill learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it allows me to do things that, that some people can't. Right. They, they have to go back and learn from scratch somewhere else. And in terms of like the industry, when you're trying to break in and you're working for like independent companies... Is it just sort of learn by doing? Like you're just sort of thrown into the deep end, and then you gotta like you gotta like figure it out. Or I, w- I would say that breaking in is largely um, sw- learning to swim while your gravity right. trying to pull you down. Because these days it seems like there's a path for artists where you know you get your portfolio review, yeah. then you incessantly bug CB Sobolski or whoever the talent person is, yeah. and then eventually they give you your shot. But back when you were doing it, that probably wasn't a wasn't a thing, right? Uh, okay, so I got my first job because I, I used I, I heard that all the editors at Marvel opened their own FedEx packages. Okay. Okay, and everything in the mail went to a mail slush pile. Right. So I FedEx samples to the editor. Wow. And Which you can't even do now. Like they won't take mail. No, they won't. Submissions. Actually, actually, uh, uh, as I understand it, I'm the reason why Marvel changed that policy. Oh really? <laughs> all FedEx Tell me pack- that story. Uh, all FedEx packages. Uh, uh, it was either because of me or because a whole bunch of us were doing it simultaneously. Um, all FedEx packages henceforth were opened uh, in the mailroom and then delivered to the editors, so they could decide if it was like something they were going to look at. Right. It was. It was young enough in the days when things were being sent by FedEx, and people were like, "Ooh, a FedEx package." So you didn't important. force them to look. I, guess- I didn't force them to look, but basically, I, I skipped the slush pile. Right. Just because uh, it was in a FedEx package. Just because it was a FedEx package. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and there's there's stories of other people who like would just go up to Marvel and then leave their samples on the desk because Marvel is more open. Right. But then they change the policy and someone had to bring you in. 
Right. So right. they're always they're always people trying to do something kind of borderline sleazy to get in like I did. Right, right. And 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 that's uh and also actually I I would actually uh contradict you a bit. I don't think approaching say uh, the portfolio line at Marvel or uh, Marvel DC at a convention is the best way to get in anymore. Okay. Totally. I th- I think social media and publishing your own comics is. Right. Because people want to see stories, right? Yeah, it's it's. I think if you did a visually engaging web comic, more people, especially editors, are going to see it than if you just do samples, right? Because um, I mean, a lot of people just they don't understand. Editors are still comics fans, so if you if you can do good comics independently, those editors are going to find them because they want to read good comics, and it shows you can finish something yeah. and get it out, yeah. and you have some level of marketing yourself and yeah. selling yourself yeah. which helps them when you're marketing their books it's it's a commitment issue right i mean there's a lot of people who i i've i've seen i'm way too old to go <laughs> with this i've seen so many artists who start something and and it just flake out right and i mean every artist flakes out at least once in their career yeah i'm sure i've done it at least a half dozen times um but there's a lot of artists on their very first gig when you think that they're most primed to put out their best effort, they'll draw a page and go, this is hard. Yeah. I'm done. Right. Yeah. And, and then the fill-in artist, that's when the fill-in, the next guy gets his shot. You know what yeah. I mean? Well, I got to tell you, being a fill-in artist is not a great experience. No. I've done it. And in fact, I think ultimately that's, that's what made it easier for me to leave comics around the, around 2000. Okay. Is I was saying yes to, um, what could best be described as work no one gave a crap about. Right. And, um, and it would always be a short deadline. Mm-hmm. And it would always come with the promise, oh, okay, you do this, you meet this deadline, we're going to give you something else. Mm-hmm. And that something else never materialized. Right. And so when Marvel was bleeding editors and books on a weekly basis, and DC really didn't know what it was publishing in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, it became really easy to go away and do like concept art, storyboarding, character design. More secure. Like, well, better paying. Better and paying. Uh, then I realized that those industries treated the artists better. Right. Yeah. Right. But let's go back to Terror Inc. So that's <laughs> your okay. first kind of assignment. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you enjoy it? Were you like, oh my God, I'm in Marvel? Like everyone thinks that like getting their work at the mainstream company is like the be all end all, at least at first, right? It, it wasn't. It wasn't. Okay. I mean, uh, uh, there was, uh, yes, I made it, uh, combined with, oh, my God, I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, the, my very first splash page, I, I worked out the perspective for everything. It was, it was Terror Incorporated jumping off of a road sign onto the front of a cop car. And I was so fixated on getting the perspective right. It was the most boring 1970s-looking comic thing ever. And my editor was like, no, push it. No, push it. And so I push it. I push it a little bit, and and I it, it was a little bit of a breakthrough at the end of finishing that page, and it still sucked. Right. I mean, everything I did in my first few issues sucked. Um, uh, in hindsight, anyway, it was the best I could do at the time. But again, I realized I wasn't ready to start. But um, in comics, you're allowed to be a level of crazy. Uh, and you have to give yourself license to be that crazy visually. Just try some stuff. Just try, just push it. I mean, uh, you, you only know when you go too far, when you actually go too far. Right. And I was terrified of going a step outside the line of normal. Right. So it, it was, uh, I, I think, I think as I get 
more experience in the industry, you realize it's like there's things that the readers just don't look at or they don't care about. They want the impact along with the story as opposed to any sort of like specific reality. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I agree with that too. Like, because as I read more and more comics, you get to know things, and you know, you get to know like what really hits you and what yeah. doesn't, right? Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. Um, in terms of technique and your process for like drawing a page, does it depend on the book that you're doing, or do you always sort of have the same sort of style and way of approaching a project? I think the storytelling is more affected by the story than anything okay. else. Uh, my approach to the media is uh, a culmination of, of experience of like just working in multiple media over the years. I've, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who goes into an art supply store. If I see a new, new type of media, I'll pick it up and play with it. Right. And, um, and, and that's a good thing because it, 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 playing with new media probably opens up options with the media you're already using as a person who's been in the industry for a long time are you using the new technology and that sort of stuff or are you are you doing like more old school techniques and that kind of stuff um i would say that digital technology is a part of my workflow right um i've drawn straight up on cintiqs and i i really gotta get one i uh i, I just had to redo a cover while i was on the road mm-hmm. and um a friend of mine allowed me to use his his studio mm-hmm and uh, Jeffrey Moy, and um, he has a big Cintiq, so I was playing around coloring, recoloring this cover for Red Sonia on a Cintiq, and it never went faster. So I got to get a Cintiq. I'm using a tablet in my studio right now, so I'm I'm pricing out getting a Cintiq or a Hawaiian. Uh, hopefully, I'm pronouncing that last one right. Yeah. Um, but right now, um, I still love drawing a pencil. I love the way a pencil makes marks on paper. Nothing tops it. You can you can emulate. Um, the type of line a pencil makes in a Cintiq, but it's not going to feel like a pencil on paper. Right, right. Uh, and the same way with ink. Um, you can, you can. I've seen people who do beautiful, beautiful inks on the Cintiq. Um, Yannick Paquette probably uh, yeah, is, is probably the best guy at it right now. But I still like the way accidents look on paper and when you correct around them. Right. And, and, you can't have that because you have control Z and the mistake goes away. Yeah. Um, I like the fact that I'm going to be stuck with a mistake that I'm going to have to fix on the artboard. Yeah. There's like a perfectly imperfectness. Like, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's that, there's that Japanese art where they repair cracked pottery with gold. Right. Which is an understanding when something's broken, Mm -hmm. it has, has its own inherent identity and value in it. Exactly. And I think, I think working on traditional media does that, but I color everything digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also manufactured a ton of, um, I would say textures and overlay filters that mm-hmm. I bring to my work. That's unique to me. Right. Uh, at least I think it is. Um, that makes my color work basically not what like some other colorist will look like. Right. So, I mean that, and that's, that's ultimately why I'm coloring all the scenes in the Bible and in heaven and, and second coming myself. Oh, wow. Cause, cause it, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a. Yeah, because uh, like we just passed as of this recording, uh, Detective Comics one thousand. Yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, Batman: The Doom that came to Gotham because right. we're at this anniversary point, and and you hold it as a high point in your career. Yeah. Uh, what was it wor- like working with Mike Mignola, and how what was the experience on that book? It was it was really interesting. I was supposed to do. I was one of the many people committed to do a Hellboy 
project of some sort. I was going to do uh, something called Hellboy Red Menace, which is basically uh, Hellboy versus the uh, House on American Activities Committee. Nice. Okay, so it's basically it's a commie hunt. I mean, I would be, read that. I, I still want to do it. If Mike, Michael ever let me do it, I'm still going to do it as a one shot. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's it's on my bucket list list. Um, and uh, so Mike realized, I, I, if I remember correctly, Mike realized that there's going to be so many more people putting a Hellboy product than he was very quickly. Hellboy was just going to become some sort of generic character and not Mike Mignola's Hellboy. Right. So, uh, he canceled everything. And, uh, so I said, well, I got this, I got this Batman ideas and Elseworlds. Uh, do you want to like collab on it? So I gave him the full story outline for Batman Doom came to Gotham. And he went, oh, well, I like this. Let me, let me, let me, uh, fax this. Cause faxes were, were real back then. Yeah. Uh, let me fax this to Archie Goodman and see if we can get something done. And Archie loved it. Yeah. And uh, so it was happening. It was it was great. And that was like the heyday of Elseworlds. Like it, it was actually it was near the end. Near the Sadly, end. it was near the end. Okay. It's because I mean DC was doing an Elseworlds of everything. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think they could have done like a Superman was raised by Smurfs Elseworld and it would have done it right. Um, and they probably would have sold as mediocre as most of the Dallas Rolls were doing at the end. It, I, I think it was, it was an ex, overexploited idea. Right. Uh, um, some great stories and then some mediocre some stories. Some really bad ones too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there were some gems that didn't get ordered enough. And there was like stories that looked amazing in, in concept. And then you pick them up and you go, oh, this is a mess. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think we, we dodged that uh, with Doom that came to Gotham because even though the initial sales were like weak, uh, as pretty much all the Elseworlds at that time were, um, it people people really liked the book. I mean, at some po- at one point, I heard that uh, the first issue was going for like one fifty. Wow! And uh, so it was uh, only a matter of time until DC did a collection, and they finally did like two years ago. And I understand it's it's almost sold out again. Yeah, and because right now there's like an eighty percent off Batman sale on Comicsology, yeah, it's getting so a lot you, of play yeah. on Comicsology. Yeah. If, so if you don't want the trade paperback with all the extra special features and the pencils from when I was supposed to draw it, you can get it in Comicsology and enjoy thoroughly. Right. And for those who don't know, what what how would you pitch them the Doom that came to Gotham? Uh, the 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 high concept pitch is what if H.P. Lovecraft created Batman. Wow, that's and, awesome! And it was it was good. We had we got to do uh, Mister Freeze. I, I literally I, I went through the the Batman Rogues Gallery, and it came up with <laughs> the stupidest bits to what to do with pretty much every Killer Crocs in there. Uh, Rachel Ghoul, the Demon got brought in. Actually, Mike brought in the Demon. He wanted more Kirby characters. Right. Uh, I had Green Green Arrow. Uh, I had all three Robins. As as sidekicks to Bruce Wayne, that's awesome. Yeah, it was it was it was a pretty fun thing. I had Penguin running around naked in the Antarctic. Penguin, nice. <laughs> so it was it was just a bizarre little little thing, and uh, I disagree with how it ended. Mike Mike came he wanted he, he turned. Uh, I don't want to spoil it. Mike did something end I didn't really agree with, but um, it's still it's still a really really good experience. Nice nice. Yeah. So. Um, so that's like a really like high watermark in your career. Also, I'm a big Alan Moore fan, as a lot of people are, and you got to work with Alan Moore on Alan Moore Storytellers, right? Uh, okay, no one really got to work with Alan Moore on Alan okay. Moore Storytellers. So tell me about this. Alan had written a ton of poetry okay. or, or lyrics. 
because uh, he, he he was a really weird underground type musician. Right. And I got to he listen. do like records with his graphic novels. Yeah, I got I got to listen to an audio tape of a bunch of his of his songs. And so I got asked by uh, Caliber Comics, which was one of the black and white publishers at the time, to to do, illustrate one of the stories called Litvinov's book. And uh, there was two people driving this. There was someone, this woman who I, his name I can't recall at the moment, who wanted to see this as a full colored collection collected book at the end of it. And there's what Caliber wanted was just black and white use of Alan Moore's lyrics, so they can say Alan Moore's in this book. Right. And so I, I immediately started trying to do research. I'm, I'm still a research guy. I tried to research Litvinov and the conflicting stories I heard from both Caliber and this woman about what the song was about. Because the song was borderline incoherent, and if you didn't know what it was about, right. and the best I could find out was that um, maybe a Russian ambassador had a uh, sexual relationship with one of the infamous Cray brothers from British crime history. Wow, I love yeah. the Cray brothers. Yeah, and uh, so you know which brother I'm talking about. Yeah, but it's like I could find an image of Litvinov, but I couldn't find any confirmation of the story. Um, or how the craze really tied in. So it turned into like this, this a nightmare because it's like I just didn't know how to proceed without researching the damn thing. Right. And then Caliber said, we need this now. I said, well, I can do something in black and white that's filler. And then the woman said, no, no, it has to be in full color. Okay. I said, okay, well, the deadline's gone for me to do a good job yeah. in full color. So I tried to do something really, really arty, um, which I think I reprinted once, but thankfully got re-illustrated by someone else later on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't it was sort of rocky that that one that one. Yeah. That, well. Yeah. It's comics. I yeah, mean, it's totally. uh, what's the Kirby quote that comics will break your heart. So yeah. I was like, Ooh, I'm working with Alan Moore. No, I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't. I'd love to work with Alan, uh, but he's retired now. Right. Yeah. So it's it's. I mean, there's still a handful of writers I want to work with, mm-hmm. um, and he was one of them. But I mean, he's got the guys he knows he's going to get what he wants out of. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. So I mean. You're working on Terry Inc. You're doing a bunch of other things. You got you got the Doom that came to Gotham. Everything's kind of coming together. Um, lately, you've been the cover artist on uh, Imaginary Fiends, yeah. and you said that that was like a fantastic book. So tell me about how uh, that project came to you. Well, I I'd met Tim Seeley, the guy who created the Ma- Imaginary Fiends at a convention, and uh, uh, I I loved Hack Slash, and um, which is his. His book has traveled from publisher to publisher, but it's currently at Image. I love it. And uh, we had talked about doing something. He had, a, he had a cool image project. And then he signed a DC exclusive, Ooh. and which was good for him. Yeah, good for him. Um, and he had pitched an image, uh, sorry, a, a Vertigo series. And the editor liked my work. He said, we want you to do covers. And nice. I read the concept, and it's, it's a combination of X-Files and the Slender Man. And it's just insane. And uh, doing those covers, some, especially cover one, I think I think that's probably, of the, of the six, it's probably the most striking. Yeah, pretty iconic with yeah. the Slender Man and the yeah. claw of yeah. the hand of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for yeah. sure. And it's like your, it's your image on Twitter. Yeah, so. yeah. I'm still sticking with that one until I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it up there in hopes that the Vertigo goes, yeah, we have a great property here. Let's do a second series. Mm-hmm. And then I get these six more covers. And you've done like everything. Like you've done, you've, you've done art, you, you, writ, you wrote issues of... Uh, pit crew and pit and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. How, what is it in you that gives you the ability to switch gears so much? Is it just being in comics for so long? 
Um, it's it, I was all I also wanted to be a writer at one point when I was a kid. I was a huge I fixated heavily on on Stephen King, um, uh, the way he would tell a story, how cleverly he would tell a story, and so that part was always active and aware. And I, I very early on I realized that there was so many comics that had a formula to them, and so when you read and when you read someone like Alan Moore. And he, he just ignores formula. He actually goes for literary motifs. And he understands the medium in a way that people who have been working in North American comics their entire lives don't. Right. And provides, like, extensive reference. And, yeah. 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 And it, it's, it's a realization that um, I'm already telling the story visually. No matter how fully scripted the comic book is, I'm still telling the story visually. Right. And if I have my own stories, and I do... Um, why don't why don't I write as well? And and it was great that Dale Kuhn gave me the uh, the opportunity to write um, essentially the last I think seven or eight issues of Pit and all six issues of the Pit Crew series because uh, that made me work on a lot of kinks and make me understand um, what works better for me as a writer. Right. Yeah. So yeah. what did you discover about yourself? Well, there's there's certain um, uh, comparisons between like the image you want to put on the page and how it actually moves the story forward. There's a lot of, uh, I, I, th- I think, I think the best example of that right now would be, uh, the recent miracle man series that just came out, Tom King and Mitch Garads. Yeah. Um, Mr. Miracle, Mr. Miracle, but yeah. I say miracle man. Oh my gosh. Which is a, which is a great comic. My well, favorite comic of all time, but yeah, yeah. Not the comic. I honestly, uh, because a buddy of mine, I just been rereading them. So I, that's probably why it's been in my head. Yeah. Um, Mr. Miracle. Mr. Miracle. Uh, he, the understanding that the reader sees something on the page, they believe in what they're seeing. So comics, in terms of the unreliable narrator, which is an old literary trope, uh, they can do it better than almost any other media these days. Right. Uh, because TV um, or movies, the unreliable narrator uh, is, is such a uh, exploited genre. Mm-hmm. Um, that people almost expect it. Yeah. Whereas in comics, you have that image. The image doesn't change. Even when you look past it and you look back at a panel, it's still the same panel. Mm-hmm. So if you have the unreliable narrator running through it, or unreliable, not in the sense he's lying to you, but you may not understand the story fully. Um, you can ha- fool people e- easier. No, I think I think what it is is you have a more immediate effect on the reader. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, think, I think that's just one aspect of what, what you can do with comics that... Uh, um, I like about writing comics that the panel doesn't necessarily have to uh, really, really carry the story in a very specific way, but by having it not, it moves the story in a different direction. I think the earliest experience I had of that was uh, Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz's Electro Assassin. Yeah. Because um, Frank would probably write some sort of script, but I need all these guys driving someplace. And for no reason whatsoever, Bill would throw a lion in the Jeep with right. people driving along and you go why is there a lion <sighs> dangerous it says something visually yeah right. you're as an artist in comics you're basically writing the story too because like you, yes yes you're the one who's like controlling the image and, yeah. and that sort of yeah. thing so you're more important than than the writer is because they, well, have, they have to write to whatever you you don't, draw. don't tell that to any writers <laughs> right? um i mean uh, the maison scene is 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 the artist's domain right okay um uh, writers can try and set it up. Unless they're actually providing layouts, they're not going to get what they want. Yeah. And if the if the artist doesn't understand it, uh, it gets lost in the story. Right. So. Mm-hmm. For sure. 
So yeah, so you're do so you're doing cover work on an imaginary fiends, and you were saying how you hope that that becomes like they do a second series yes, of that, very right? Much. Yeah. Like, for people who haven't read the book, what 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 do you like about it? Well, first off, uh, it's got a nice level of crazy that Vertigo hadn't had for a while, mm-hmm. um, and just just in terms of like just straight up monsters. A Vertigo Vertigo seems to have um, well, let's put it plainly, images pretty much drunk. Vertigo's milkshake, right. for the most part. Exactly. Um, They're not what they were, and well, they can't be. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a completely different uh, industry than it was like twenty years ago, twenty five yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, I mean, they can they can go back and say we can relaunch all all the Neil Gaiman stuff and Neil Gaiman's oversight, and it's going to have a feel of that that classic era. But if you launch new Vertigo books and and Second Coming was part supposed to be part of that right. that relaunch. It's really hard to do it without realizing you're in the shadow of things like Preacher and Transmetropolitan and all these other books that that came out and transformed how comics were looked at in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like Imaginary Fiends for you, I mean, because it's monster, it gets that love of Bernie Wrightson that you had yeah, originally yeah, and yeah. that sort of thing. So yeah. perfect. Yeah. So now you're doing Second Coming, and there yeah. was some controversy around Second Coming. Oh, a little. A little controversy. A little, a little controversy. controversy. Yeah. Uh, like you said, it was supposed to be originally published by DC Vertigo. Yeah. Uh, and then there was like a petition or something. Yeah. And people got mad that Jesus was going to be depicted in a comic yeah. with a superhero, right? Yeah. Uh, that's that's pretty much it, yeah. Okay. Okay. So then, so so what happened? From your perspective, you're getting ready to co-create this book. And then did you get a call or? Well, well, what happened is is um, Warner Brothers had just uh, finished this merger with AT and T, right? And so that was highly politicized. And um, so Warner Brothers, AT and T, were very concerned about any controversies coming up from any division, right? And um, as everyone remembers, a little while ago, we we got to see Bruce Wayne's little Robin. And, oh, oh yeah, yeah, Batman damned, yeah. And that that uh, that landed uh, the the person currently overseeing DC for Warner Brothers. That landed on her desk for her first week, and uh, freaked this, out. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if she freaked out, but she didn't want her first week of work being like, "What did we do? Yeah, uh, how many lunch boxes can we not sell now because of bat penis?" And um, so it was only a matter of time for any sort of controversy would be problematic for Warner Brothers DC. And to give DC credit, a lot of people like dumping on, on DC Comics whenever they, they, they make a decision. Yeah, the argument was, why didn't they just roll with it, right? Yeah, well, I, uh, Dan Didio believed in the book. I think, uh, given his druthers without any pressure from above, I think Vertigo would have already published mm-hmm. uh, first and about to publish the second issue of, of Second Coming. Um, but there was some pressure to remove some of the material from the book and cover it up. Um, uh, most notably, uh, uh, Adam's penis. Okay. That, that was a line too far. Um, Even though it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Adam's, well, everyone's, technically everyone's penis is in the Bible. It's <laughs> just not referred to. Um, but yeah, so we, we and then um, uh, Mark Russell, uh, the writer on, on this book, um, mentioned that the nudity was removed and some religious group said, oh my God, they're drawing Jesus naked. Hmm. And it's like, oh, why would you think that? But anyway, so there was some censorship, and then there came a second wave of changes being requested. And Dan Didier realized we're not going to be publishing, or we as Vertigo, 
not going to be publishing the book that we committed to. Right. And I think this book deserves the audience that we wanted to appeal to. Mm-hmm. So he got to make the call. I'm, I'm going to give this book back to uh, Mark and Richard. Yeah. And uh, he did. And uh, and then, then it was a little bit of negotiation, find, feeling out who would be the best place to land it at. And it turned out to be Ahoy Comics, which is uh, the editor-in-chief is a former Vertigo editor from the 90s. Nice. And a consulting editor is another Vertigo editor from the 90s. Mm-hmm. So if we want to do a controversial book, who, whose hands better to put it in than people who actually knew Vertigo back in the day? Now, I might ask a controversial question, but are you concerned at all about exposure now that you're with Ahoy versus having published with DC Vertigo in terms of people finding the book? Well, we got uh, a lovely New York Times piece okay. uh, with the announcement that we were with Ahoy. Uh, in many ways, we got more positive exposure, starting with um, going away from Vertigo okay. than before. But of course, that that wouldn't happen if we weren't dropped by a Warner Brothers company, right? Yeah, uh, I I think we, we there is some concern that Ahoy, being a smaller publisher, essentially a curated comics line they're like they're not open to submissions or anything mm. they, they find creators they want to work with and they work with them to yeah. create books um there is some concern that retailers may not know where to look in the catalog for the book so we're going to be doing big outreach as the next catalog comes out and we're going to be saying if you want this book make sure you get it because i think the threat of some some religious groups to go into comic shops on the day the book's out and buy all the comics and destroy them is still valid. Wow. There's been a lot of threats. I mean, I don't I don't necessarily take, like, the death threats I got seriously. Um, wow, death threats. Well, it, it, I've been on the internet long enough to know that death threats are, are, are you know, they're, they're the, 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 they want to shut you up, so they're going to threaten with something way out of line and far beyond anything they're going to do. Right. Um, I can't take death threats that seriously. I mean, uh, Trump extorted his followers to attack the media for how long. And then finally two did after nearly two years. Um, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, uh, the fact I draw a funny book puts me way low in the totem pole of, yeah. of, uh, of people are going to be attacked. So second coming, what all I know about it is it's like Jesus and a Superman, uh, like kind of yeah. amalgam yeah. together in one book. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and this is Mark's story to tell, but I'm going to tell it because he's not here. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dan Didio invited Mark into the DC offices to pitch a bunch of Superman stories. And uh, Dan's response was, oh, we did that in 1960. Oh, we did that in 1970. Oh, we did that in 1940. And then eventually getting right near the end of his list of options, he said, well, what if, what if Jesus was uh, Superman's roommate for a couple of weeks? And Dan says, well, that's something we've never done. <laughs> and we're never going to do that. But if you pitch it over your vertigo, I'll green light it. Nice. And uh, so that's that's the gestation of it. Um, there was a lot of great work. I mean, the the vertigo editor on hand uh, who who shepherded the book for the longest time was Molly Mahan. Right. I believe she's now in the bad office. Uh, so that's that's I guess that's a promotion for that, her. That would be a promotion. Yeah. Yeah. So she was integral to to helping the book take its shape. She was the one who brought me on board. Uh, she's the one who got Amanda Connor to do covers. I mean, it's uh, it's it's largely her book, and and we're all reaping the benefits of all the works that she did. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was going to be a great book, and uh, DC had no choice but to let it go. 
And we're at Ahoy, and actually, in many ways, it's going to be a better book at Ahoy. So do you have to redo all the stuff? Like, you're not going to have Amanda Connor doing covers? We have Amanda's covers for the first six issues still. I'm doing an alternate. People have seen my, um, uh, it was originally promo art to announce the book. Ahoy's going to run that as an alternate cover, so I'm going to have an alternate cover in issue one. Cool. Um, But we're just going to do Amanda's covers for the first six issues. Um, The big change is is, um, we're bringing on some visual differences to make the book a little more unique. Nice. Um, right after we we were given the rights back, uh, it was Kurt Swan's birthday. Oh. And so I saw a huge amount of Kurt Swan art online right. for like three, four days. Um, and so I was looking at this going, you know, we're missing that kind of like openness to superheroes now. Everything is like so <laughs> grim and dark and everything. And um, I think it was also because I was looking at Wrong Earth and um, at, also from Ahoy at the time. And I was thinking about, like, maybe maybe Earth should be a lot different right. in the book mm-hmm. instead of my scritchy, scratchy, scrabbly, Bill Sienkiewicz, Bernie Wrights and crap. Uh, what, if, what if Earth looked a bit more like Kurt Swan drew it? And not, not apishly like Kurt Swan. So I looked at it for a bit, and I, I, I realized that uh, I'm just not the guy to do that clean open stuff. Right. Uh, it takes me too long. And I thought, well, what if we brought in a guy to work on my layouts for Earth and to push the difference, distance, differences more, I'd color the scenes set in heaven in the Bible. Right. Even if they coexist on the same page, I'd still color those sequences and draw those sequences. Sounds really good. And so that's what we're doing. So that's, okay. uh, and I think we're going to be doing a story about that. It's going to be a, a marketing PR story, certainly, because we have, we have found the artist, but I'm not going to say who it is until, until okay. we actually can say, look at his art. Look okay. at my art. Okay, so. cool. Um, with Second Coming, you get to do a lot of things around like a benevolent god because like a superman has a sort of god-like powers and mm-hmm. then you have jesus you know there who is god ostensibly yeah so i guess you got to tackle a lot of like religious philosophy and stuff that way right? well i think we're attacking it uh slightly differently everyone thinks we're attacking jesus and anyone who attacks jesus is an idiot I mean, we're talking about one of the cornerstones of any, of the most benign approach to philosophy in Western culture that was immediately corrupted and taken over by the Romans. Um, uh, so you really can't attack them without being an asshole. And right. We're not assholes. Right. Right. We're actually, I mean, we said it multiple times, Jesus is the main positive character in the book. Hmm. Um, but the real, I think the real message is, is you have Superman who can throw people through mountains. Okay, and in the greater scheme of things, that doesn't save the world. Right. Okay, and if Jesus, the Son of God, the literal Son of God in this book, um, gave a message that would have made everyone better off. Everyone would be better off if they actually lived to Jesus' messages. And the world is a shithole. Right, because it was corrupted by humanity. And- well, yeah, humanity took over the message. I mean, when, when Constantine took over uh, and made Christianity the essentially the state religion of the Roman Empire... Um, he did it to fuck with his enemies. Right. I mean, he didn't say, wow, let's just feed everyone and live in peace. He said, no, I get to kill a bunch of people because now I'm a monotheist and they still worship the old gods. Right, right. It was an excuse for war. Yeah, and and we've done it. I mean, religion's done horrible things. Like, uh, on my way here, I get a, a, a Twitter message from Ahoy. This Catholic organization says, well, blasphemy should never be seen as entertainment. Uh, and I think, okay, I was born into a Catholic family. 
Um, so I'm a little, I'm a little aware of what's going on with the Catholics right now. They're still not really making right anything what they do to the kids. Right. And honestly, I don't know if there's ever been an official apology for siding with the fascists at the beginning of World War II. Right. And it seems like, it seems like they got a good Pope who wants to say stuff, but everyone else, like there's no action. Well, there, there's that. an institution that's designed to maintain its power, which right. is again, the problem with the corruption of Jesus' message. Right. I mean, if, if we as a culture... Believe in, believe in the supernatural element or not, if we as a culture absorb Jesus' message, we wouldn't have a problem with poverty. We wouldn't have a problem with hate crimes. We right. wouldn't have these problems. I mean, you wouldn't have white supremacists running around saying God is on our side. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, um, for all these all these self-appointed Christians, they're, they're not really living his message particularly well. And I, I think, again, going back to Twitter... Uh, one of the best posts about this would be, do you really think Jesus would care that people are publishing a comic book? No, he wouldn't. No, exactly. Okay, even if it was blasphemous, he really wouldn't care. Yeah. No, I'm I'm looking forward to the, like, I guess debates on their couch between Jesus and Superman about, like, what it takes to save the world and what is really saving the world and that sort of thing. Um, um, okay, I'm going to cut you off there. We're, we're actually, it's not that talky a book. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, it, it's, 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 it's still more visuals than that. Okay. Um, in fact, uh, I'm working on a sequence that we've added to the first issue. First issue is not just going to be the 22 pages as originally solicited with Vertigo. We're adding eight more pages. Okay. Um and the eight more pages is a biblical flashback for the most part. And we actually get to see how forgiving Jesus is. Nice. So it's, it's actions. Uh, we're using the story. It's, again, it's visual storytelling. It's a visual medium. Right. So we're using actions to really, really identify the abilities and limit- limitations of our characters. I mean, uh, Sunstar, as, as we're calling him now. Uh, Sunstar, as powerful he is, he makes mistakes because for all intents and purposes, he still is... Uh, despite being an alien, uh, he's still as human as you or, you or I. Right. In terms of his like uh, uh, physical, mental, emotional capabilities, in terms of dealing with grief and everything. He experiences stress. Right. Um, he makes bad choices. He gets jealous. Yeah. Right? Just and, because, you know, Clark Kent was raised on Earth, so th- yeah. he is human, right? So, yeah. So, so he, he has, has uh, his, his frame of reference is human. Right. Um, Jesus is still Jesus. Jesus is still the guy who says, you know what? Yeah, they crucified me, but they're still good. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 you know, they shoved a spear in my side and they threw me in a hole in the ground, but I came back and I said, I believe in you guys. I mean, I mean, uh, that was a little bit of buddy Christ there on that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Kevin Smith. We should get really, we should really get Kevin Smith to, uh, give us a plug too. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Kevin Smith, if you're out there, uh, listen to some speech bubble. Well, yeah, Kevin Smith shirt right there. That's exactly. Awesome. Yeah. With, the Sp- with the Batman yeah. and the Robin and Silent yeah. Bob and Jay. Yeah. Awesome. Silent Bat. and Yeah. 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 I don't know how to go there. No, I don't know. Yeah. So how would you do, you know, yeah. Yeah. Jay, Robin. Who knows? Yeah. So, so, so when is this book coming out? When can I finally? You will, it will be in comic shops July 10th. July 10th. That's coming up fast. It's like, I find that like. I've all, I've really wanted to read this book, and then I didn't get to because it yeah. got canceled. And then, yeah. as you're finding, I have ideas about this book, and all I've seen are the cover images, the yeah. images, right? Yeah. So it's, everybody has opinions before it's even coming out. Even me. Yeah, it's 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 one of the. De- I mean, the people most angriest are the ones who fabricated complete ideas about what the book is. I mean, the first piece of artwork I did with uh, uh, Jesus putting down a suitcase. 
and carrying a loaf of bread under his arm. He's kind of like smiling embarrassed. His dad's making a move in with Superman, right? Yeah. And um, this one, I've uh, heard of comics gay. This one comics gay jerk goes, well, look at Jesus. He's smirking. That's terrible. Jesus doesn't smirk. I'm like, that's not a smirk. What yeah. the hell, man? Um, there are people out there who want to create their own outrage narrative. There is a lot of what I call manufactured outrage around this book. It's like they have no idea what the book's about. So it's, it's tabula rasa in terms of like what we can be upset about. Right. I mean, it's like they're going to say, Jesus is going to get tattoos and have gay sex, which I probably shouldn't have said because now someone's going to take that and say that's what the book is about. It doesn't happen in the book. Right. It doesn't. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, um, we're, we're telling a story about power dynamics in right. our world and we're using these characters to look at our world and believe you me we're using the classical interpretation of christ to show that our world sucks <laughs> right and we're we're using superman to show that our our adherence to belief in power meaning good and effect efficacy in terms of bringing good about doesn't work power right. doesn't work america is the most powerful military by what power of seven yeah okay and exactly how much peace have they brought to world in the last what 20 years like nothing nothing they, i mean it's like they made the middle east middle east worse <coughs> yeah. i mean korea looks like it's about to go nuclear on us yeah i mean and they're still relying on like the world war ii idea of the military yeah even though like that's not what the military is anymore they just destabilize places yeah. it's it's um i mean the sad truth is, is a military intervention, um, even, even people I respect mm -hmm. who, who, who are smart, way smarter than me have made the mistake thinking a military intervention was the right way to go. Right. Christopher Hitchens, probably one of the most acerbic, uh, cutting edge thinkers of, of the last century, um, ended up backing the Iraq invasion, mm -hmm. uh, thinking that it would, it would have a happy result. I mean, but if you look at the people who ran the Iraq invasion, it was a nightmare. And he ultimately, I mean, look at Iraq now. I mean, it's here we are close to 20 years later, and it's only now getting close to looking like it might be a democracy. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's. Yeah. They yeah. just leave power vacuums. and It really, I mean, it's not the Marshall Plan. You yeah. can't mm -hmm. do that. I mean, Japan worked because it was isolated enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, Iraq is right in the middle of an area of warfare that's been existing for thousands of years. Right. Mm -hmm. So. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because you're sort of at the center of it, oh. is comics game. I, I don't know that I'm at center anymore. Uh, there's been some people who've really, really stood up. Okay. Uh, I think I think we're referring to like Renfromus and SJW Spider-Man. Right. These wonderful Twitter handles um, who, who really really watchdog the idiocy, the inherent sexism, transphobia, homophobia, uh, white supremacy that's that's built into into comics gay, which is which is one of the, one of the most ironic things all, all along because they'll say, we have black members. How can we be racist? I said, well, maybe you should think about that a bit more. Right. Okay, it's, ra racism isn't that simple. Um, these are people who say they, they're tired of politics in their comic books. Yeah, that, uh, but that they, for somehow diversifying comic books is is making them worse. Yes, and 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 it's it's they're not listening 
to their audience, which is yeah. apparently just white males. Yeah. And that's tanking the comic industry. So yeah, they're it's, going it's... to save it as the original comics readers yeah. by getting all the... Yeah, know... it's get the scary gay and black people out of comics so we <laughs> right. can enjoy them again. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing they don't understand is that comics, going way back to the early days of the direct market, and I'm, I'm a, <laughs> this is me being old again, I remember the discussions that were going on as the direct market became the model for comics distribution in, uh, in the industry. Uh, my earliest experiences of Marvel, people did not want direct-only sales comic books. Right. As creators. Because they, they wanted did. a wider audience. They wanted a wider audience, and the direct market was a bottle. Right. Right? You could have a lot of comics in it, but it has a narrow opening to get new readers in. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're seeing the long-term effects of that. There's fewer people going to direct market comic shops, not because of the content, but because they don't know the stores exist. Well, and accessibility. Like, yeah. why go to a direct market comic shop when you can get a graphic novel on Amazon or Barnes yeah, & Noble exactly. or Chapters or anywhere? Yeah, I, I think I think everyone knows that most graphic novel sales are handled through Amazon now. Mm-hmm. I think everyone knows that the vast majority of web comics have larger audiences than any mainstream comic. Right. Uh, it's and and when they get those get collected, they go to the book trade and they sell tons of copies. <coughs> and then there's anime, and then there's manga. Yeah, yeah, and and that's 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 the start of the diversity. So when they complain about you know Marvel saying oh you know what we need a more diverse range of characters, it's Marvel understanding they are going to die if they rely on the the comics gate style model of audience. Right, you have to appeal. To women, you have to appeal to people who wouldn't normally read a comic so that they come and buy your comics. It's what it is. It really is. I mean, it's, it's, it's why would a woman want to read a 1970s Iron Man comic? Right. Okay, sure, women have read it. Women have enjoyed it. But why would they go out of their way to read it? Mm-hmm. Now, so Marvel, for good or bad, comes up with a teenage black Iron Man variant. Right. Okay. Um, anyone who's been around comics knows full, fully well enough that Tony Stark's going to come back eventually. Exactly. And he, I think he has already. He has. Uh, and Ironheart's going to be around finding her audience. Yeah. And it may be successful, it may not be. But to, to be upset over the existence of this character is, is inherently demonstrating how morally flawed the person is especially when the character that you have always grown up reading is not going away yeah it's, it's there it's there and those books are all there there's a very good chance that most people and honestly it, it's 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 one of the most ludicrous things about comics it is how so many of them say well i used to buy comics <laughs> i used to buy comics in in the 90s okay well okay well all this diversity is really only the, the real, why do you I'll, care now? Why do you care now? Why do you care well, now? Well, I, I stumbled across a YouTube video where someone said that social justice warriors are destroying things. Right. And I'm anti-social justice warrior. Mm-hmm. And I've been a liberal long enough to know that social justice warriors were something that were a problem to liberals back around the court, turn of the century. Right. Right. So the people who actually identified the hyper-liberal people as a problem were leftists. Yeah. Right. So now the right wing wants to, to couple anyone who disagrees with them as social justice warriors. Right. It, it's, it's, and why is that a bad thing? Like, I don't understand how that's dismissive and well, there, there, like, there is, there is an element of, and, and this is, this is where people are going to attack me. There is an element of ideological thinking when you go to the far left, right? Just as there is when you go to the far right. Right. Um, ideological thinking is, is terrible. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but this is this is the method by which, generally speaking, ever since Rupert Murdoch's come to North America, the right has identified the left as 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 always by being the most extreme. Well, and the media has split it yeah. into yeah. ideal di- yeah. two different ideologies. Exactly, exactly. So it's uh, the notion that that comics create thinks that all comics are becoming social justice comics is nonsense. Nonsense that it, on its face. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of comics are still about entertaining stories. Right, exactly. Okay? Um, but they're angry about the 10% of the output of Marvel or DC that has incorporated a more diverse approach to material. Right. Right? And anyone who backs that 10%, oh my God, they're the worst possible people. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it's Ironheart, the, the black Iron Man character, a black teenage female Iron Man character, has no appeal to me at all because mm. I don't read that. No. Right? And it doesn't hurt me in the least that that book exists. No. Okay? The type of person who's going to be angry that that book exists has something wrong with them. And it probably stems down to the fact that they probably have tr- troubles with women and black people. Yeah. They already have a agenda that has nothing yeah. to do with comics. Yeah. It's racist. Exactly. And, and, and that's why when, when it comes right down to it, the vast majority of comics gate people aren't comics fans. Right. Because uh, real comics fans are fans of comics, period. They find the comics they enjoy. They don't give a crap about the comics they don't enjoy, unless it's like some sort of like hate speech comic. Right. But social media allows people, the internet allows people yeah. to find an issue and go, this is where I can stick my you two, know, cents in, yeah. two cents, right? Yeah. It's outrage culture. Yeah. I mean, it's like, give me something to be angry. It's, it's, it's uh, again, going back to Second Coming. I mean, there's like, I think it was over a quarter million people signing that petition to get Warner Brothers to kill the book. That weren't those weren't two hundred fifty thousand people who were buying comics. No, those are those two hundred fifty thousand people who saw a story on Breitbart or Fox and said, "Oh my God, the book that I have never know about otherwise shouldn't exist." Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, we're talking about a book that might have what twenty thousand people potential readers yeah. in the extant comic market, and that's good by the extant comic market and. Our goal is to make them happy. Yeah. But you kind of you kind of became a target of Comicsgate. Like why, for you personally, why did you sort of become a lightning rod? Why, why insert yourself into the discussion instead um, of ignoring it? Well, my okay, initially there was a little bit of guilt on my part. Okay. So I saw the, the, the whole insta- instigating milkshake incident on, on Instagram. Right. Uh, where... A lot of these people just sing to really coalesce for the first time. Yeah, this was just like, this was when the ladies of of comics were celebrating Flo Steinberg, right? For, yeah. For... So a whole bunch of assistant editors from Marvel decided to have a milkshake, like Flo Steinberg did, to celebrate the memory of the recently passed Flo Steinberg. Right. And um, so this this incredibly toxic moment was was vilified by the far right in right. comic books. Uh, uh, I mean, a lot. This Richard Meyer guy, who's um, he's got a long history with just having problems with women in general, um, attacked it, right? And uh, and at, at, I, I expressed my support of of, of the editors right. because they shouldn't be facing that harassment. But I thought that was the end of it. Uh, just a few months later, I found that it wasn't. So in like January the next year, um, I found out that Comicsgate had really become a thing. Right. And uh, I couldn't I couldn't believe that there was that solid a base, right? Because and then I found out they were attacking minorities and women creators and editors, harassing them online, 
And I just went, well, this is this is just not what comics are about. I mm-hmm. mean, from the lowest level of comics in terms of engagement with like you know kid level superheroes, it's about being a good person. And you got people who are like raging over the fact that women are making comics, right? And 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 coming up with the most absurd theories about like what's happening to the industry what's happening to comic shops without any understanding so i initially tried to to uh, respond with reason i go this is this is why the direct market sucks right and this is this is why comics comics companies have to produce more diverse content right and uh the moment they realized they were they, they were just not informed enough to have a discussion with me they'd lose their shit Mm-hmm. And I remember one point I spent an entire night in a Twitter discussion with someone explaining everything only to have this person come back at me say I was transphobic because there were a, an Hispanic uh, uh, transsexual. And it's like w- something which had never come up in the conversation. <laughs> so I had no idea they were either Hispanic <coughs> or transsexual. Weird. And, and it's like, I'm like, how do you respond to that? And it turns out you hit a line with a lot of these people because they are devoid of facts or information right. and they just relying on the nonsense ma- manufactured by uh imbeciles like richard meyer or ethan van skyver right who want their people they like their pe- their backers stupid yeah and ethan van skyver who was always right like he was always like conservative republican guy but then all of a sudden became like just got you know, became one of the proponents of, of Comicscape for some reason. Just well, no, I, I can tell you exactly the reason. Okay. He's, a, he's a narcissist. Okay. He's a narcissist. Ethan always, always wanted to be the center of attention. And his work doesn't carry it enough to do it. Right. Um, I mean, he's 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 a second-rate Brian Ballin clone. Right. And, and, and I'm talking about this. I, I tried to be friends with him for a very long time. Right. And it became increasingly difficult the more he would embrace, like, stupid theories about JFK assassination and the moon landing. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's literally... For attention. For, for attention. For but he would also do things. He'd bring a freaking keyboard to Artist Alley at a major convention and play the keyboard in Artist Alley. Right. Now, every single other artist hated his guts. Right. But would be nice to him because we're nice people. Yeah. Okay? And there was a time when he was doing like Green Lantern Rebirth and that was... Well, everyone, everyone gives him... Everyone wants to give everyone else the benefit of the doubt. Right. And every time Ethan got a second chance, he would very quickly fuck it up again. Right. I mean, he would run like troll gangs off of Facebook. He would do the most horrific things. I remember uh, I was at I was at Comic Con uh, right after his sketchbook with the the the, the uh, Mein Kampf, My Glory sketchbook. He thought it was hilarious. Right. It was actually suggested from a mutual friend, Moose Bauman, who uh, designed and put together the sketchbook for Ethan. It was a joke, and I'm like, going, oh, dude, that's just that's just not a joke you want to make. Right, yeah. And so now, years later, people coming back, well, you did that. And he's like, it was a joke. Why don't you understand? And it's like, he knew this was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's acting really butthurt because, oh my God, it happened. Right. Uh, so does he really believe in this sort of thing or is he just trying to... I think he believes foment? he's the most important... I think he believes he's the most important person in comics. Okay. And anything that moves, us, moves him aside from being that uh, is bad and toxic. So if you look at how he operates in Comicsgate, um, he is somehow... Uh, managed to kick aside Richard Meyer, who is, for all intents and purposes, as damaged a person as he clearly is, uh, is not as much of a narcissist that Ethan is. Right. Um, the Aid exists as a uh, financial life support for Ethan Van Skyver and his ego. Right. And then you can publish books like Cyber Frog or... Eventually publish these sort books. of 
I would think. Yeah, these sort of like uh, right wing comics that. I don't are... know that Cyberfog's going to be right wing. Oh, okay. I, I think a lot of people in comics are are pushing right wing books. Right. Um, or uh, and I I honestly don't ca- see. There's a lot of right wing people in comics. Right, mm. and it, inherently, comics being a, a, an heroic medium is going to be left wing. Right, anything that motivates along the lines of like protecting people and being being the good guy and protecting the weak is going to be inherently left. But with comics, wasn't there a string of people who were like, "We're going to publish books with like violence, and these are going to be there was the alt right, our there, brand there like of alt right superheroes." Yeah, bu- based stick band. There was an alt right movement to publish comic uh, comic books like that. And um, Vox Day, the alt-right guy from Gamergate, who still managed to maintain some sort of celebrity, he actually made an imprint called Comicsgate Comics. Right. And which, um, I, there's more nonsense behind the scenes. That apparently, Ethan Van Skyver knew about it. But when Vox Day announced it, Ethan Van Skyver pretended to be incredibly outraged by it. Right. Um, because, I mean, that would get his base stirred up. There, everything, everything is about generating outrage so people will give him more money. Right. So 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 you got caught up in it. Yeah. But why don't you just like let things lie? Because it's like you know that like that they're just go- they're just you're just going to be in an endless debate with someone. It's not even all a debate, night, right? It's, it's 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 an argument. An argument. It, it, yeah. It's it's like the Monty Python skit. Is this right. like room for an argument? Right. Right. No, this is abuse. Yeah, right? and and it's like it's um, like great that you want to like defend uh you know that you're on the side of right in this, but also like you got stuff to do and things. Yeah, to, I have the things to draw. I have the, I have the, and it was it was um, so there weren't a lot like Mark. Give Mark Wade credit. Uh, he was an early uh, antagonist to Comicsgate. He stood up for a lot of the minorities. So you have to give him credit there. Um, but that didn't seem to be enough, and so I jumped in. Right. And uh, as Comicsgate kept trying to take dead creators. Uh, as as these people would have believed in comics gate right like Darwin Cook other pros said what the fuck are you doing <laughs> right right I mean so there was a one point where Bill Sienkiewicz was like I mean I, I mean he's, he's personally a role model mm-hmm. and uh, and a friend uh, when Bill Sienkiewicz finally stepped up and he said what the fuck are you guys doing okay, you didn't you leave Darwin's widow alone right right I mean that's that's when we hit the tipping point where there were so many people mm-hmm. rallied to the notion of what Comicsgate was up to that they were, for the first time, I think, e- equally matched online. Right. And um, since then, uh, I think I think the rats are leaving the ship in many ways. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people just joined Comicsgate for the 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 mob mentality or we're owning the libs. Right. So it's it's dying now. It's I would say it's it's imploding. I mean, apart from Ethan's book, I think uh, the vast majority of the, the Indiegogo Comicsgate books have failed to reach funding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I saw, I, I, again, because other people have stepped up, I've, I've actually stepped back. Right. Even though, even though I stepped back, I'm still one of the favorite targets, which is mm. kind of wonderful. <laughs> That's I, why I, we're talking about yeah, this. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of funny where it's like, I don't have to do much. I just retweet some stuff. Right. And, and it's like, I've, I've apparently violated some sort of law of, of right-wing theology. And it's just because you were, you were there at the beginning. Well, I would, again, it's like, I think the people at the beginning who were up to this were the minorities and the women that they were targeting. Right. And the indie comics creators. I think, I think they're taken for granted now. Just because, just because a whole bunch of people have stepped up since, 
they're they're being looked at as if they didn't do. They fought long and hard in anonymity, right? Um, totally. And they put up with so much abuse from these these assholes, right? Uh, and the assholes are still there. I mean, there's guys out there still trying to. I mean, just in C2E2, this moron named Nasser. And it's weird. He felt Comicscape from the moment he walked up because he looked like he was having a hard time choosing his words. Uh, and he did a video about me. Oh. All right. And it's like, I'm going, why? Yeah. Okay. I mean, if either you have an operating agenda, it's like, if you, if you think you can save comics, why aren't you saving comics? Right. Because funding comics through Indiegogo isn't helping one direct market store. No. It's not helping one. And it's not finding new fans. No. It's helping you produce your comic. Yeah. They're all, they're all essentially like, if, 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 if Ethan's a shark, mm-hmm. okay, uh, pretty much everyone else in Comigate are the little fish that attach themselves to shark to eat the little bits of, right. of detritus Whatever that fall comes out, out of its of mouth. It, yeah. yeah. And, and that's really what they are. And I honestly don't think that... Um, Ethan can't really call himself a comic artist anymore because um, most of what he's doing is is doing videos of cutting dolls off of uh, heads off of dolls from Star Wars and, right. and attacking like I mean he spent what the last three four months just attacking Captain Marvel nonstop yeah, totally and um, and now here it is it's it's past nine hundred million going towards a billion and it's like well that's the failure that Ethan predicted <laughs> totally so it's, yeah. it's 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 I, I honestly. Uh, we're we're getting to a point now where we're not going to have to talk about them. Good, and and that's only going to be for the better because then we can then we can completely go back to focusing on what good comics are. Right, and there's some amazing. I mean, uh, have you had Jeff Lemire on as a guest yet? We, he's uh, hopefully on the way. I have a story for you after this. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah, because I gotta tell you what Jeff Lemire is doing at Dark Horse. Yeah. is some of the best superhero comics I've ever read. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'll, I, I, I'm going to tell you right yeah. after we, we were done. Yeah. Um, but um, while, uh, while I have you, I just want to know, uh, you know, people can pick up comics ga- or pick up uh, Second Coming uh, July 10th. Yeah. And then if they want to follow you on social media for the other things that you do, yeah. where can they find you? Well, I prefer, uh, I'd like people to follow me on Instagram because that's where I post primarily art, no politics. Okay. Uh, Twitter, I will talk about anything, and there's no guarantee. Even though I'll, I'll share my art in Twitter, there's no guarantee I'm going to be focusing on on art there. Okay. But the the best place to to get art and information is Instagram. So it's Richard Pace on Instagram. Nice. Well, yeah. thanks for for doing this. I hope uh, I hope it was a good conversation for you. It was very enlightening for me. It's nice to have a veteran on the show once in a while. All right. Well, thank you very much. All well, right. veteran of the comics industry. Yeah. I, I exactly. Served, so. Exactly. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.